Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Leif, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Leif, one of the traditions we have uh, here at, at the podcast Whiskey and a Map is we start off with a good drinking story. You got a good drinking story for us. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this question and a few things come to mind. You know, one of the first things that come to mind for me is trekking into Everest Base Camp when I was about 18 years old with my dad and he uh, is a rum drinker. His drink is a rum and Coke or a Mai Tai. Those are his two, his two drinks and it's got to be dark rum, Myers dark rum, ideally. Um, so we we did this two week trek, right? It takes two weeks to get to Everest Base Camp just of hiking. Like that's just to get to the start of the mountain. And for me at that age, it was this, you know, really magical experience being there with my dad having heard this history growing up in this family of climbers and then visiting the Himalaya for the first time myself, seeing the highest peaks in the world and listening to his stories and Gambu, Nawang Gambu, the Sherpa that climbed to the summit with him in 1963. So the whole hike, we were, you know, just hearing these stories from these guys about what the place had been like 40 years earlier. And it was just, oh yeah, like a, a really special experience to be there and we got to base camp and of course my the first thing my dad wanted to do was have a have a rum and coke uh and toast the mountain um so we had a you know he had a bottle of rum i think carried in the whole <laughs> the whole way just to uh just to have a rum and coke at base camp and man it tasted tasted really good but at that altitude like a little bit of alcohol can really affect you so I didn't feel, I didn't even finish my cup because I was like, oh, this is, this is too much for me. I'm up at 17,500 feet and I'm like, you know, already pretty tired from this hike. Um, don't, don't really need the alcohol, but, um, it was, it was, it was a fun, fun experience and a way to celebrate the mountain. I also think of going into the Tengboche Monastery on the, on the hike in and going and sitting with the Lama of that monastery and having some yak butter tea with him, which is, if you haven't had it, I mean, it just sounds terrible and it, and it, it kind of is. I mean, it's, it's this oily tea, you know, that has butter, uh, yak butter on the top of it and it's really salty. Um, so it's not like what you think of when you think of tea. It's like this salty, uh, drink, but of course we're sitting there with the llama, like in his room and you want to be respectful. And, um, so I, I think I did down the whole cup, but not, not my favorite flavor, the yak butter tea. <laughs> the infamous yak butter tea. Yeah. Uh, you come from a family of famous mountaineers and uh, your father was, uh, the first American to climb and summit Everest. But curiously, you spent a good portion of your childhood growing up on a sailboat. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that that story, you know, I, I 
my first book, My Old Man in the Mountain, which I published in 2016, hopefully won't be my last book. Uh, my mother and I have talked about co-authoring a, uh, a book about that sailing trip growing up on a sailboat for me. And we sailed all throughout the South Pacific and, and Pacific for about four years. And uh, she has a great idea for the title for that book. It's My Old Mom and the Sea. <laughs> and so uh, I think she's, she's excited about that. I think, it's, I think it'll be a bestseller. Um, but uh, yeah, what a magical trip. You know, when I was about 11 years old, my parents, who are a little different, think outside the box, decided that they were going to sell everything we owned sell our huge house that I grew up in, in Port Townsend, Washington, you know, overlooking the water and the Straits of Juan de Fuca and move all of us onto a sailboat, a 53 foot sailboat, a steel pilot house catch. And for the next four years we sailed, yeah, all around the Pacific ocean. So at that age I was pretty pissed. <laughs> I was like, you're, we're doing what you're, you know, you're moving me away from, my hometown and my friends and everything I knew and putting me on a sailboat with, you know, my, my sworn enemy at the time, my brother, Joss, my older brother. Uh, so I, I was, yeah, I was uncertain as to what was going to come of that trip. But, um, you know, looking back on it, it really, it, it shaped me in a lot of ways. And that's a really, those are formative years at that age to be traveling all over the world and experiencing different cultures and going through hardships, you know, being out in the middle of the ocean for more than 20 days without seeing land, learning to dive and all sorts of things. I mean, I, I lied about my age to get my dive certification in Mexico. I was a big, I was a big 11 year old. So I said I was 12 years old <laughs> and, uh, got my paddy certification down in Mexico. And then I think my first open water dive without a guide was on a wall in the Marquesas islands that was, had pretty extreme currents and, uh, you know, 400 foot wall that we were just cruising along, uh, at about, you know, 60 or 80 feet and just like, wow. Okay. My, my first, open water dive is like probably something that very few divers will ever get to, to see a place that's really remote and, you know, a, a really untouched reef and, and things like that. So like, I feel really fortunate and privileged to have had some of those experiences when I was a kid. Yeah. What an opportunity. Absolutely. But I was still, uh, I was still upset about it. You know, I, I, at that age, you kind of want, you want what you want. I wanted a basketball hoop and hanging out with my friends. <laughs> So, yeah. Now, eventually that you make it back to Washington, your family, climbers, there's a guide service that they run on Mount Rainier. Did you just naturally become a climber yourself or how'd that come about? Yeah, I actually didn't like climbing much when I was a kid. You know, it was, didn't make sense to me as, as far as a sport goes. I thought it was just, you know, painful and uncomfortable and, like, what the hell is this? You're just climbing up a mountain. It doesn't make any sense. Like there's no ball or hoop or there's no score or opponent. And, uh, so yeah, it, it wasn't until I was about 15 years old that I really found my own passion for climbing with my brother, Joss. We went out into the Olympic mountains and climbed Mount Olympus. And it's the first chapter in my book for a reason, because 
it was this magical experience being out there, just the two of us, like away from my parents, you know, without any chaperones or anyone looking over our shoulder. We saw elk on the hike in on, uh, along the Ho River there. It's this beautiful 18-mile hike to the start of the actual climb. And the hike itself is like a real challenge, you know, going that distance in. Um, and then we were making our way up the glacier without much sense of what we were doing. I mean, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Like looking back on it, it was really dangerous. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone's, uh, you know, to, to any parents who are out there, like it's not the way to get your kids into climbing is to let them go out when they're 15 years old and, and climb a major peak. But we made it somehow. We like muddled our way to the top. I think we were off the main route for a lot of the climb and had some assistance along the way by some other climbers that kind of told us, okay, this is, this is where you should go. Like this is the way to, to do this. And there was a moment on the summit block, you know, most of the climb is a glacier and then you get onto this summit block and there's a few different ways you can get up it. But the way we took was, one of the easier ways it was a scramble and i think they called it class four scramble but uh getting onto the summit block was challenging going over a moat between the rock and the snow and then once we were on there there was this really really exposed section where you know i was looking back and and there was thousands of feet of air beneath my feet and it was it was relatively straightforward climbing like even at that age i knew it was something that i could do but just that feeling of exposure and air. Oh man. I mean, it was like, you know, it really got to me. And I remember kind of getting through that and my brother, you know, in his knowledge led up that with the rope. And so I was, I was being belayed by him, but got through that section through that exposure and made it to the summit and stood there with him. And that was like just this euphoric feeling of standing on the sun and looking out at the Olympic mountains, like beautiful day we had up there. And so that it was just this, this euphoric feeling. And I think that's where the, the passion for climbing really began for me was, was that first climb of Mount Olympus. And then, yeah, just went on up from there and started climbing more peaks and higher mountains and traveling and, um, had some really, yeah, great opportunities to go, uh, climb all over the world. What is your most memorable climb of all the peaks that you've done? That's one of them. I mean, Mount Olympus has to be just because it's the first. And, you know, I think a lot of mountaineers have a story like the one I just told. That first feeling of standing on a summit, whether it's with your teammates or sometimes even alone. And, it, and I, I think that's always something we're looking to go back to. Like every climb after that is just looking for that same feeling that we had on our first experience in the mountains. Um, so yeah, that, that for me was one of the most memorable. My two climbs of Mount Everest, of course, stand out in my experience um, because of my personal connection to that mountain and my heritage on that mountain. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I wrote a book about it because there's just so much there in my soul and in my spirit that is connected to that place. And, um, so, you know, those Everest climbs were really, really magical. More recently, I, I climbed Denali with two close friends of mine and that was a really, really powerful experience as well because, you know, it was just the three of us 
we were there helping each other unsupported doing it on our own and in that sort of setting as opposed to a big team on mount everest it's just a different feeling uh and being 20 days on the glacier on denali and descending on skis for nine hours on one day i mean like all sorts of stories from that climb as well but yeah it's hard to pick a a favorite mountain or a favorite memory there's there's so many things to think about and, and hopefully a lot more in the future as well it does hook you i had a similar experience uh on Mount Shasta, that was the first real mountain that I ever climbed to the to the top of. And there's a picture of me. I'm just sitting there at the top, got my Nigene bottle there, trying to rehydrate, and I'm just looking out in this just a vast expanse of air, and out into the the mountains. and And from there, you can see these series of volcanoes that just you know go up and down the state of California, up into Oregon. But yeah, it's it's a quite a different feeling. It does hook you. Yeah, that you know what you said just there made me think of a story from my climb on Mount Vinson, uh, which is the highest peak in Antarctica. And um, when I was down there, you know, it's a world of rock and ice. Um, I've never felt more remote than I had did on Mount Vinson. And there was this moment we were up at Camp Two, been climbing for about a week at this point, and one afternoon, which is hard to define really no night and no day. And so on that expedition, night was when you were in the shadow of a mountain. And when you're in the shadow, the temperature plummets. You're like, I better get in my sleeping bag, you know, and hide out and stay warm. And then when the sun comes around the horizon and you're in the sun again, it's actually not bad. It's like fairly comfortable temperature. But this was, yeah, what what was the afternoon at that campsite? And we walked out to this cliff edge and stood looking out at this expanse. And I was like, Oh, this is a, this is an amazing view. I'm looking down at this bank of clouds with all these peaks sticking up through it. You know, this just white expanse. And that's like something you've probably seen in the mountains. Like you'd see on Mount Rainier or Mount Baker, even climbing up to Camp Muir, you'll see that sometimes where you get out of the clouds and now you're looking out at this cloud layer beneath you and you know you can see in the distance mount adams or mount st helens sticking up through the clouds that's what i thought i was looking at but then i realized that those aren't clouds that's the ice that's the continent of antarctica and as far as i could see it was just white snow and glacier with these rock peaks sticking up through it and and i that was when i felt like wow okay i've never been farther out in a wilderness than i am right now just just the only you know shred of color out there was our tents and our jackets and it was it was it was a made me feel very very small (laughs) and then can you imagine those early antarctic explorers that were just out there crossing that, uh, carrying everything on their, their sleds and it's amazing feats. Oh yeah. I, I can only imagine it because it was hard enough how we did it, but with that old, that old gear and the survival stories from that region are, yeah, really incredible. You had a phrase that I came across that I wanted to ask you about, and that is you were saying that there are still magical places are there magical places still in this world? What do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think more and more of the 
planet is being seen and mapped and you know it's really easy to find anything to search on the internet and find a ton of information about anywhere you want to go almost anywhere at this point so it starts to feel like there's nothing untouched out there there's there's no places left where you can kind of get away from the crowds and see these unique sites but i i think there really is and sometimes it's not even it doesn't even require going that far. It just requires a little bit of imagination and looking at our back door sometimes where, you know, this isn't a, a big destination place, but there's just beautiful things. And I think of like working up for the forest service, I got to know the Mount Baker national forest so well being up there for 10 years. I mean, I just, you know, driving every single road and going on every single trail, you start to learn that place so well. And, I remember maybe in my fifth or sixth season up there, we drove up a road and, you know, there was a culvert there that we, that we parked at and we decided to walk up this little creek bed and see what we found. And we walked up this creek bed and came to this beautiful waterfall. I mean, it was an amazing cascade of water coming down into this pool of rocks and, it was like the type of view that, you know, if it had a trail to it, there'd be hundreds of people going and checking it out. But because it required, you know, wading through some water and stepping on some slippery rocks there, you know, very few people would probably go and, and look at that. And so it was like, all it took was like being a little creative and thinking outside the box and like found this amazing place, which, you know, it's, it's not going to be on any uh, top 10 lists or anything like that. But the moment we spent there, the time we enjoyed that place, like had, had importance to me. And it was like this magical, beautiful place. So I think there's all sorts of spots around and it just takes a little bit of exploring and, you know, sometimes not knowing what you're going to do, sometimes not having an exact plan of where you're going to go. And not necessarily planning everything out on, on a map or on your phone to know every detail of your trip. Like, it's okay to get lost sometimes. And, um, you know, I mean, not for too long, hopefully, because we don't want to have to come rescue you. But it's okay to be lost sometimes. And, um, and it, it can lead to really cool experiences. What? That's what exploration is all about. It's going someplace that, at least for you, is off the map and seeing what's there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's rare to get lost. I mean, it's certainly rare to get lost when you're driving anymore, but I used to love like, oh, we're, I don't know where we are. We're in some neighborhood just driving around. But that one of the first things that I always do when I go to a new city, when I travel is just walk around, just walk outside the hotel and just, you know, see where my nose takes me and just walk around the city and check things out. And, um, I really, I really enjoy doing that and, and with nothing in mind, with no destination in mind, you know, just walk down some streets, see what the place is like, get a feel for it and, and, you know, eventually find your way back. Hopefully you worked as a climbing ranger. Tell us about those experiences. Yeah. You know, that job, um, was really fortunate to have that opportunity and, um, be able to work up on Mount Baker. It's a really special mountain. It's, you know, 
one of the most popular volcanoes in, in Washington, second to Rainier probably, but still feels pretty wild. Um, it's not a national park, it's a national forest. So the, the rules tend to be a little bit less strict. You know, you kind of have a little more freedom to go out and explore the place. Um, and yeah, just being, being up there spending years and years in the same landscape and coming back to the same trails gave me a, a different sort of understanding of a wilderness and an ecosystem and a mountain. You know, I think for most of us, a lot of climbers, we go to a mountain with the objective of climbing it and we may return there once or twice. For example, guides often will return to the same routes, but unless you're a guide or for some reason you have a purpose being on that mountain, it's often a one-off experience. And so we see one side of that mountain, what it's like in the specific time frame that we were there in one season. But being a climbing ranger, one of the things that I loved was that I would return year after year and always have this kind of backlog and history of information in my mind of what was it like this June three years ago and what is it like now? How has it changed? And when you start to notice those differences it's like it's always different. There's always something new to see. And the mountain is always changing. And the landscape is always changing a little bit. And so it didn't ever get boring to me, really. It was it was it was always interesting. It was always changing. Um, and yeah, I really enjoyed that, like returning to a place and seeing it over and over again, as opposed to just going there, summiting it, leaving, you know, and, and never coming back again. And yeah, there are so many stories from that, from that job. I mean, my, my first, um, my first weekend working in that job was one of the crazier rescue experiences I've ever had. Oh, tell um, us about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> um, so my climbing partner, Brandon and I had summited Mount Baker on skis and we're skiing down the glacier and we had decided to camp lower on the mountain than we normally would. Normally we'd be camped up at Sandy camp and we were camped down at what we call peanut knob, which is just this in the belly of a, of a Creek drainage, Rocky Creek. And so we were skiing down the glacier. This was in June, I believe pretty early in the season. Um, we'd summited and we're skiing down the glacier and we come down around this corner and see all these snowmobiles that were pulled up beside a, a hole in the snowpack. And in the summer, this location is a big waterfall um, in, the, in the Rocky Creek drainage. But at that time of year, the snowpack was mostly covering it. But on the front side of this steep rollover, there was a hole in the snowpack. And it turned out a snowmobiler had, had gone over that rollover thinking like all the other rollovers in the area that you could just go over the top of it and go right down the, you know, the front side of it. But it was, it was wide open. And so she fell into the bottom of this thing, fell maybe about 50 feet and wow. was really banged up, was at the bottom of, of this hole being pummeled by the waterfall. And we don't know exactly how long she had been there, but when we got there, but you know, we're in uniform. So people started s screaming at us and we come over and, um, see the situation is very, very serious situation. I mean, she was unable to get out of the hole herself. Um, and so Brandon heroically, I set up anchors and set up a rope system and then he went down there and, and rigged her up on a, 
on a, a system. And we, we were able, with the help of a lot of snowmobilers there who were really, really helpful, were able to pull her out. But when she, I mean, when she came up, like she was so hypothermic, she was, you know, blue. Uh, her skin was hard to the touch. I thought when she came up into my arms that she was dead actually. But, um, it turned out we started warming her up. Her vitals started improving. She started coming back to life and it was really incredible to see her come out of that and regain function. And she, she had, you know, a dislocated shoulder, some fractured ribs, I think a fractured vertebrae and was really in trouble. And then we got a, a helicopter to come in to extract her, but the, there was a false alarm rescue on Mount Shuxon at the time. So our normal helicopter out of Whidbey Island was working on that. And so we got a, a Coast Guard helicopter from Port Angeles. And the Coast Guard is not used to hovering or landing at this altitude. We were at maybe 6,000 feet and they had a full load of fuel. And so, you know, our person, Stephanie, was there recovering and her vitals were getting better. So we weren't too worried, but we need, she needed medical attention pretty severely. And so, this helicopter is meanwhile circling for about an hour, burning fuel so they can get light enough to hover. And they finally get there. They lower a guy down and he's in like a full, you know, Marine rescue suit. Like it, it was almost like he stepped out onto the glacier with flippers on or something. I mean, he didn't, but that's what it felt like. And, you know, he was kind of looking around like, holy smokes, where am I? And, uh, he, we're like, come on, man, we need you over here. We walked him over, rigged her up in a, in the litter and she got lifted up and then they lifted up the, you know, the rescue swimmer and flew off and, and she made a full recovery. I mean, she was, um, amazing recovery and, uh, and, you know, is, is a really strong snowmobiler to this day. Um, so a, yeah, just like, I was like, is it going to be like this every weekend? I mean, this is my first weekend working on Baker and it's like, uh, I, I'd never had another rescue experience like that. But the, the follow up to that story, which is pretty funny is that a few weeks later we were hiking up the trail and saw this group of military looking fellows who were with a guide and we were coming down the trail, you know, and, and saw them and, and usually chat with most people and we're like, Hey, how's it going guys? Like, what are you up to? And, Right away, one of the guys connected eyes and he's like, you're those guys from the rescue. And it was the rescue swimmer. And he had convinced the, the you know, their boss or whatever to to pay for a mountaineering course because he was like, if we're going to be rescuing people on these glaciers, we better know what's up. So the whole flight crew from the helicopter was doing a mountaineering course. And it was just he was just gave us a hug and was like, oh, my God, you guys did such a good job on that rescue. And. So it just, it came back around. It was, it was really cool to see those guys up there. Oh, very cool. Describing her condition, she's awfully lucky that you guys came along when, uh, when you did, because, you know, who knows how much longer she could have survived down there. Absolutely. Yeah. No, she was very, very fortunate. We came, came around that corner. And, and, you know, the reason I mentioned the campsite we were at is because, Normally, we would have just skied to Sandy Camp, which was above that location. So it was really fortunate that we had camped lower down, probably because we were too weak to go any higher <laughs> that, that first day of the hike. Uh, but but then we we skied down to that location, and and like this accident site was just just above where we had camped. So it was yeah, it was 
very, very fortunate. And she, you know, she messages me all the time and really is grateful that, that we were there. And, and a lot of other people too, that really helped with that rescue. There were some medical professionals there and guide service came by and helped boil water and that we could put in bottles and package around her to warm her up. And so, yeah, a lot of people really helped out with that rescue. Yeah, isn't it interesting that when you do go out in the wilderness like that, how folks will come to aid without any question as soon as they can, it, it's really heartening. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've seen that in a lot of different places. And, you know, we're all in it together. And, you know, you, no one wants to see an accident or a death happen on a mountain. So if you're in the vicinity, it's like, yeah, you show up, you respond, help out how you can. I've, I've seen that in, on all the different mountains all around. In all of your work out in the wilderness and on mountains, sailing the South Pacific, what's the uh, what's the strangest thing you've ever come across? <laughs> Man, there that's that's a hard one. I I think of a few different things. One is I've seen a yeti. <laughs> really? And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was in a museum in the Highland region of Nepal. And we, you know, we went into this place, which was closed down and wasn't allowing visitors, but being there with, with Gombu in particular, you know, we were kind of privileged access to some things. And he knew that this, this Yeti skull was, was in this uh, museum. And so, yeah, they opened it up for us and we, you know, walked into this, this dark room with all these different displays that were all shut down and, they opened up this box and there was this, this, uh, kind of mummified skull that was looked, I don't know. It looked kind of like a bear or, or something. It was, it was a very unusual shaped <laughs> skull that was all mummified. And they said, this is the Yeti. This is, this is a Yeti skull here. So, so that's, yeah, that was a weird one. Uh, really, really interesting experience. You know, the sailing trip has a lot of, of strange, you know, you hear these stories from, from history about strange things happening out in the ocean. And it's definitely true. It's a mysterious place, the open ocean. And there are a lot of, lot of stories from that one in particular that, that really stands out in my memory was one night we were, you know, sailing and I'm not exactly sure where this is from. I'd have to confirm with my parents, but it was not too far offshore um, because that night there were amazing bioluminescence in the water. And I remember, I think it was my brother heard something. He was either on watch or he heard calls of dolphin song through the through the steel hull of the boat, he had a, a berth up in the bow of the boat, the V berth. And so he would hear things coming through the hull that the rest of us wouldn't. And I don't know if he had heard the, you know, you know, heard the, the songs or the communication of the dolphins, but he, he went up on deck and saw this thing happening and like caught, woke us all up, you know, and was like, you guys got to come up and see this. And there was this, you know, what looked like a firefight happening between all these different sea creatures, there were flying fish that were going through this bioluminescence, you know, these flying fish uh, going onto the surface of the water, being chased by what looked like tuna, 
which were being chased by dolphins, and they were all lit up in this green fire, this bioluminescence, and they're just splashing all over the place and chasing each other around the boat in the middle of the night. And it's like, what am I seeing right now? This is this is un unreal, like something you'd you know see in a movie or something. And it was just, yeah, it was like, wow. I mean, we watched it for for. It seemed like a, a really long time seeing this this stuff happening, and it, it was just an amazing, amazing sight. What an experience! Oh man, yeah. I mean, it was like a, a firefight underwater happening. So it was, ah, oh, geez, all sorts of stuff like that out in the ocean. Well, you know, all those sailors back in the back in the day would come back with these uh, what appeared to be fantastic stories. Uh, maybe they weren't so fantastic after all. That's right. <laughs> Let me switch gears on you again. Uh, I want to talk about climbing. You summited Everest twice, and you recently did Denali. Mm -hmm. On the Everest climbs, it must have been a unique experience knowing that your father had been the first up there, and you're essentially following in his footsteps. How did that feel? How, how would that trip go? Yeah, you know, it was it was a special experience for me having that heritage on Mount Everest. For me, the experience of climbing Everest was really a return to history and return to heritage. And so I was carrying with me books that were about that American Mount Everest expedition in 1963. I was reading uh, The West Ridge by Tom Hornbein, Americans on Everest by James Ramsey Ullman, I was reading my dad's memoir that he wrote. And then on top of all that, he had given me his personal journal from the, the, the 1963 trip. And they had these very detailed journals that they had to fill out every day. It was part of the psychological studies that they were doing. You know, this trip, a lot of people don't know, but it was a very scientific fo focused trip. And that was how they got a lot of their funding was... Um, because of the studies that they were doing to the, on the glaciers about uh, physiology and anatomy at high altitude and psychology. And so they had these journals that had these set questions that they had to fill out every day and they had to rate their sleep and rate, you know, it was almost like the functions on what is our now our Apple watch or something like, how did you sleep? Uh, you know, one of one to 10 and um, how's your general mood today and, and things like that. And so I had this, you know, handwritten book with me and I was reading it and I would, I would, I could pretty much line up my experience with my father's and say, uh, you know, where was he on this day of the expedition and, or what was his experience like going through the Kumbu icefall for the first time? And just to be able to compare what it was like in 1963 to my experience 50 years later, was really special. And that's, of course, what my book is mostly about is, is weaving those two stories together, those two narratives together and, and telling it from my perspective. So, yeah, I mean, lots of, lots of, of course, diff differences, also a lot of similarities, I think that's things that still exist on Everest existed back then and, and, you know, are the same up on Everest now, but yeah, lots of, I, I, I got a lot of, uh, kind of comfort from reading that book, I would say in hard moments, like one, one story is, uh, you know, it's, it's common to get sick up in, 
up in that region. It's, you know, you're at high altitude, your immune system is suppressed. There's bugs floating around, you know, sanitation is, is hard and things like that. So it's common to get sick. And I remember I, I picked something up and was just like terribly, terribly sick at one point toward the beginning of the expedition. And I, you know, was, I mean, nauseated and just messed up. And I remember opening up the journal, my dad's journal and reading this, this passage from him that was like all, all the markings on the, you know, how you felt were like zeros and ones. And he said, you know, woke up in the middle of the night and puked all over the tent. (laughs) And I read that and I was like, I feel way better. I felt so much better after reading that passage and thinking, uh, oh man, all right, if, if big Jim Whitaker, you know, this kind of superhero figure, uh, was sick like this and could still climb Everest, maybe I can too. So that was like a, a great comfort in a time of tough time for me. But yeah, lots of, lots of stories about revisiting history and, you know, returning to Everest about 50 years after him. There was one particular point on the climb, and you were just at the base of the Hillary Step, and you had kind of a recognition of, of what it took your father to get over that. First, for people who don't know what the Hillary Step is, can you describe that for us? Yeah, the Hillary Step is, uh, and I, and to be honest, I've heard that the Hillary Step is no longer there, that it was shed off the mountain in an earthquake, and the earthquakes in, I believe it was 2016 or something like that. So, and photos I've seen of that ridgeline more recently would indicate that because there's not as much of a, of that challenging, what, what the Hillary step was is a big kind of clump of rock that was stuck right on the ridgeline on the, on the Southeast Ridge of Mount Everest. And, uh, and it, there was no way around it, right? It was, it was something that you always had to climb up. And so for, for me, during my climbs, it was, you know, some hard vertical rock for, for, you know, a short, a short step of rock, but really challenging, especially at 28,700 feet, right? Like you're at extreme altitude at this point. So that sort of powerful movement was really, really hard. And it was a bottleneck. It was where there would always be issues with crowding because it would take people a long time to get up or down it. And there was only, it's a one way street. There's no way to get past, you know, so it just, it was a really constant problem with the crowds. And for me, that's, that's what happened. We, we had been climbing all day really strong and came up over the South summit, which is where you first see the Hillary step in front of you. And I mean, when, when we crested that South summit, I saw more than a hundred people on the Cornice Traverse and the Hillary Step at that time. And I saw that and my heart just sank. I mean, I thought our trip was over, but it turned out it was such a beautiful day for us on Everest um, that we we turned our oxygen tanks down. We clipped into this little ribbon of fixed rope and kind of huddled in this little spot and waited as all these people descended past us and got down the Hillary Step and got out of the way. And yeah, sitting there for about 90 minutes sat there waiting, trying to stay warm and everything and being really frustrated at all these people <laughs> being in the way. Um, but I thought about dad and Gombu and thinking about what that, what that must've been like for them. And I remember looking up at the, you know, the Hillary step and, and imagining it back then in 63, you know, there were no fixed ropes. 
There was no one else up there. It was just these two guys, Jim and Gombu, connected by a single rope way, way out there on the edge, right? And climbing and through a storm. I mean, they climbed through 50-mile-an-hour winds that day to get to the summit. I mean, it was like a ground blizzard blowing across the mountain. And just, yeah, I remember taking that in. And then about three weeks when I, later when I returned to Seattle, my dad met me at the airport and gave me a big hug and said, how was it, son? And I was like, dad, you did some crazy shit up there. <laughs> so uh, it really did. Like you said, I mean, it took me experiencing it for myself and seeing it for myself to, to gain a deeper appreciation for what he and Gombu accomplished up there. It still blows my mind what they did. I've been really fortunate because in the mountains, as you know, it's a lot of it really is about luck. Um, it's there. You do have to have some luck in the mountains to be successful. And we want to, you know, we kind of don't like that idea. I think a lot of us want to think that it's all under our control and that everything, you know, that we can control is what makes us successful. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that there's an element of luck in all this. And, I've been really, really fortunate when I'm in an objective hazard, for example, in an area like the Kumbu Icefall, where it's a roll of the dice every time you go through there. I mean, you are putting your life on the line just by walking through that place. And for me, never to have you know, been, been hit by an avalanche in there, had Icefall come down on me or anything like that, is that's just, that's a fortunate thing that I, that I was lucky to to be able to get through that that place safely so yeah i thankfully have have been okay up to now yeah your father's uh, expedition unfortunately had a terrible accident in the kumbo icefall if i recall yeah the second day of the real climbing i mean they had they had trekked for a month to get to base camp at that time it was a 185 mile hike just to get to base camp which is much different than it is now but the first first day of climbing when they went into that Kumbu Icefall, which is the first feature on Mount Everest that you encounter from base camp. My dad was on the first team to go in there um, with a bunch of other climbers and they built the route about halfway up the Icefall and came back down, you know, exhausted. Uh, and the next day, another group of climbers went up there to try to get farther up the mountain. And yeah, there was a collapse that day that came down it was described by james ramsey ullman as two box cars of ice that came down on one of the climbing teams and crushed jake breitenbach who was a 27 year old guide from jackson wyoming and he was killed on the second day of the expedition so for that to happen you know i mean two days on this mountain and you've already lost a friend uh man that would have been you know i think about that and how much determination and, you know, how that, how difficult that would have been mentally and emotionally to now have to go through uh, a place where your friend is buried under 40 feet of ice and you have to walk over his body and climb this mountain that has just killed him. I mean, geez, like to have that happen now, most people wouldn't want to continue. But of course, back then it was like they had planned for years. They had already trekked for a month just to get there. 
I mean, they had committed years of their lives to planning and preparing for this trip. So there was no, there, they weren't going to turn back. Um, and they took a few days to kind of collect themselves and pay their respects to Jake and then climb, continued climbing and, you know, use, use his death as motivation. A lot of the guys said, we're going to climb this for Jake in his honor, uh, and make this trip a success. But yeah, to have that happen on day two, man, uh, to be able to overcome that is, what an unfortunate thing. What are the lessons that you've learned from all your times in the, in the mountains? Oh man, endless lessons. You know, the, the mountains are great teachers and I think every mountain I climb teaches me a new lesson. I really look at the mountains as teachers and every time we go up a peak, even if it's something like Mount Baker that I've been up, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 times. I don't even know how many times every climb, there's still something you learn, something new, new, you see something different. And I think one way to judge success in the mountains is by how much you learned and how that experience changed you and shaped you. A lot of us would identify success in the mountains as reaching the summit and coming down alive. But I think shifting that focus to what you've learned on this climb is, is a, a great way to look at it. And I, I try to encourage some of my athletes to think that way. Um, I have a guy down in Ecuador right now who just had a really powerful experience on Antisana and, you know, he didn't summit the mountain, but reading what he was writing about his, his climb and things like that. I'm like, this right here is, is what it's all about, man. This, this is what climbing is all about. You may not have reached the summit, but in my view, this is a really, really successful experience in the mountains. So yeah, I, you know, I, there's, there, I could go on for hours about all the lessons that I've learned up there. Um, but I keep learning them. There's, there's a lot, a lot to be drawn from the mountains. For folks who want to follow you, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're interested in training, I encourage you to check out Evoke Endurance and you can find me there. If I'm also, of course, on social media, um, Instagram and Facebook, Leaf Whitaker, L-E-I-F-W-H-I-T-T-A-K-E-R. There's only one of me out there as far as I can tell. So I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. Yeah. And feel free to get in touch with me any way you'd like. And the name of your book? The name of my book is My Old Man and the Mountain. Any final thoughts? No, thanks for having me, Michael. It's been really fun chatting. And um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, really appreciate you coming on. It's been a great conversation. All right, we'll see you down the road. Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>